Hey there everyone, um, this is Andrew here and this is the lecture on the Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, this is a really interesting um, letter that we see in the New Testament and one of the reasons why it's so interesting is because um, in contrast to what we see in Paul's letters, the Epistle to the Hebrews actually seems to have, it, it could be seen to have, I think, a negative view at times on the um, uh, Hebrew scriptures or on Jewish traditions. And so there are times where um, you get a little bit of a different perspective maybe from the early church on how to think about um, the traditions that were received from um, from Jewish Jewish practices. So as we've discussed before, the Epistle to the Hebrews was originally thought to be written by Paul, but um, we see discussions in the early church of folks who are questioning who wrote the epistle. If you look in your book, it talks a little bit about the different, um, the different possibilities. So um, as far as even Clement, Barnabas, Luke, Silvanus, Apollos, and Priscilla, um, but one of uh, but Paul was the, thought to be the original author, and so I think though um, you'll see that um, it doesn't mean that it's not Paul, but um, you'll see that as you read it, the letter does have definitely a different tone and a different emphasis than Paul's letters. Paul uh, really focuses a lot on the law. And the issue of the law doesn't really show up as much in the book of Hebrews or the epistles of the Hebrews. And also the focus is on Jesus's priestliness, which is not really uh, talked about much in Paul's letters. So the author of the epistle to the Hebrews makes this basically argument that Jesus is um, is a, new, a great high priest of a greater order than any other uh, a great high priest of a certain group that is greater than any other group that has um, group of priests that has existed. And so because Jesus is the one who bridges the gap for us between um, between God and man, then Jesus, uh, Jesus is a priest, uh, is is the best priest um, ever, basically, because he has once for all uh, cemented this connection between his followers and um, his Father God, and so Jesus is this great high priest who is greater than um, than any other priest that's ever existed. And so this is interesting because it's not exactly something that is taught directly, like in the Gospels, for example. We don't see a huge emphasis on um, on Jesus as a priest. You get a little bit in John, but in general, Jesus isn't seen much as a priest throughout the Gospels, uh, at least the synoptics. And so this idea, I think, is really an extrapolation, probably, uh, uh, kind of a, an inference that that the author of Hebrews draws based on um, his conviction that um, that Jesus kind of, kind of is maybe even using priesthood as an illustration of Jesus's status as the one who bridges the gap between God and and humanity. So 
the epistle to the Hebrews, here we go, um, is what's called a general epistle. So in contrast to Paul's letters, which were written to individuals or churches, so an epistle to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, to Timothy, to Titus, this is a general epistle. It's not written to a particular group, um, and actually you don't see um, even an address line in the beginning. You know, normally you would say, you know, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle from our God and Father, that kind of thing, um, grace and peace to you, to the church that's in Ephesus. You don't see anything like that. So that's another reason why people would, would challenge the idea that this is a Pauline epistle. Um, even though there are still some people out there today that would argue that Paul did write it, um, this is a challenge to that idea because it doesn't follow Paul's typical letter format. Um, it does have kind of a doctrinal section, doctrinal sections and, um, and kind of practical sections where he's, uh, the author's telling people to do things based on what, based on kind of the doctrinal teaching that has preceded it. But uh, even so, um, it just, to me, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that Paul didn't write it. But, um, but again, going back to the question of canon, this is where we see there are some books that when we look back today, or some, some books in the New Testament, when we look back today, we might question kind of the, the reason why they were put in there because this would meet maybe only th three of the four criteria. We don't know that it actually had apostolic connection in the, in the same sense as like one of Paul's letters. However, we do know that there was some kind of connection with uh, early church leadership. And so we see that at the very end of the book, if you look at um, Hebrews 13, 22, the final greeting, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, which is kind of funny because it's actually a really long letter. Um, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he uh, comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings, grace be with you all. And so there's this connection with Timothy, who we're thinking is the, same, the very same Timothy um, from First and Second Timothy um, the, that Paul wrote to. So there is some connection there. Um, it was uh, slightly contested in the early church, but also widely accepted, so it meets that Catholicity um, argument. Um, it's was thought to have originated in the first century and all the teachings within it are in line with the the received teaching of the early church so it it meets all the four criteria but it's where it's weakest is maybe in that apostolicity one because we don't know who wrote it um however again where i kind of go with that is thinking thinking on um the idea that the, that God was active in the process of choosing the books that ended up in the New Testament and that there's a reason that um, that it was included. So um, just kind of a piece of information there that's, that's to keep in mind as we're reading the book. We don't know when it was written, but there are some kind of spots throughout the book that we can maybe see some issues about... Um, something like persecution maybe that was happening with the Christians, or maybe that there was an idea that the 
that it was unpopular among the audience to be a follower of Jesus. We see encouragements to persevere in spite of um, in spite of the shame, persevere in faith um, to Jesus in spite of the shame that might uh, come upon you because of your faith, those kind of things we see uh, throughout the book. We're going to talk a little bit about some particular areas, but um, the author, again, is unknown. So the uh, way that people have often in kind of scholarly circles talked about this is they refer to the author as auctor ad hebreus, which is Latin for author to the Hebrews. So um, what people will, will refer to him as the author as is auctor, kind of as though that were his name, which just means author in Latin. So um, that's kind of what I'll do um, following after a guy named William Barner, I, uh, who uh, wrote a book about Hebrews. But anyway, um, what did Octor really care about? So I would argue that the author of Hebrews wanted to demonstrate that Jesus is greater than any Jewish rituals or traditions and that he should be followed regardless of the repercussions. So you can... Um, we're going to walk through the book and I'm going to show you why it is that I think that's the case momentarily. But here's the structure. And if you're going to remember one idea from this book, what I would really encourage you to think about is Jesus is greater than. So Jesus is greater than um, the, the original uh, the Jewish priesthood. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than all of the sacrifices that were made uh, um, in order to, to demonstrate repentance and turning away from sin. Jesus is greater than all of those things. Jesus is the best sacrifice. So I think the Jesus is greater than the angels. That's the other thing too. So I think that that's the main theme. Um, and then there's some maybe sub-themes throughout, and that's where where we get the, some of the, the hints at things like persecution and that kind of, that kind of thing. But what we see uh, in the very beginning in uh, chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And he goes into a discussion of how Jesus is better than the angels, um, and so that's just kind of led to a belief where there's some kind of problem with people worshiping angels among the Hebrews in the early church. And we don't, we don't really know. I mean, this is kind of one of those things where we're, we're doing what's called mirror reading. We're trying to read what's on the other side. What's the situation that this was written into kind of like the exercise that we did with the letter with um, uh, John and Jane figuring out what gave rise to this letter because it's not entirely clear. It definitely does seem like there was some kind of concern about people maybe not continuing in faith, not persevering um, in their faith to Jesus. And so in chapter 3, we see 
that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is the one who gave the law to the Jewish people. He was the one that led them out of Egypt in the Exodus. He was basically kind of like the founder with Yahweh of the nation of Israel. Um, this is something that's kind of interesting as well. So um, the, uh, the idea of Sabbath, we've kind of uh, talked about this before, but the one of the debates, I guess, in the history of the church has been whether Christians should observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, which is actually Saturday. Sunday is the first day of the week. So if you look on your calendar, it goes from Sunday to Saturday. It doesn't go from Monday to Sunday. So that's, or typically it doesn't. Um, and so that's kind of something people forget about. But Saturday is the seventh day. <coughs> and in the book of Genesis, it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth and then in six days and then resting on the seventh day. And, um, the Hebrew people um, were told in the law to rest on the seventh day as an expression of their trust that God would take care of them and that they didn't need to work every day, day to provide for their family. <coughs> Sorry. But that they should trust God by giving that one day up in order to um, show that it wasn't them that were bringing the, the rain and bringing the harvest. It was actually God. Who was doing that but anyway so so in the same way the the author to the hebrews is really kind of pushing unlike paul this is a very intriguing thing i feel like the author to the hebrews is actually kind of trying to encourage a little bit of distance from these jewish practices and so this is to me very interesting that we have a, a kind of maybe two different perspectives on the relationship between um, followers of jesus and and um uh Hebrew uh, Hebrew tradition or uh, uh, rituals inherited from the Hebrew scriptures. And so, for example, and if you look in um, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. As I soar in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And so he's taught, he brings up this idea of rest. And um, if you have read the uh, Hebrew scriptures, then you would know about um, the fact that after Moses led the people, led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, to go worship God in the, in the, um, in the wilderness, then uh, they were disobedient, and so therefore God said, because of his, he, he uh, was basically kind of, he was saying, I need to get rid of this generation that is disobedient and start with a new generation, and so I'm going to wait 40 years before bringing them actually into the land that I promised them, the land that I promised to Abraham. And so he, um, so they wander around for 40 years, and uh, what he's saying here is that that was uh, God preventing them from entering into rest. Rest would have been the land that he had promised to Abraham. So uh, look in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
So if you continue on to chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you, any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So the, the author of the Hebrews is, is um, looking through these two lenses, basically saying that there's these people that will not enter rest. And there's these people, the followers of Jesus, the people who, um, who have um, escaped the wrath of God by being by receiving Jesus's righteousness. Um, they have already entered into rest. Verse six: Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, look in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, just to recap the argument, there's this idea of rest, and rest is rest could be even thought of as symbolic for entering into God's promise, um, entering into, uh, like, being released from kind of striving, those kind of things, I think. And so... What he's saying is there's people that will enter that rest, um, and those are the followers of Jesus, and there are people that won't enter that rest. And those are the people who are disobedient, um, who are not um, who are not persevering in their faith to Jesus. And so he's saying, strive to enter that rest, and that, um, that the fact is that for those that have entered into that rest, they've entered into something I think that's even greater than the Sabbath. He says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God also did from his. And so he's saying that we've already entered into this rest. And so there's this sense in which every day kind of, I think, for those who are followers of Jesus, is kind of a, a rest from labor. We're not striving anymore um, like those who were in disobedience. So um, that's kind of the argument I would make. Um, against the idea that that Christians need to have a Sabbath rest. Now, I think we've talked about before the idea that, now, what was the point of the Sabbath? The point of the Sabbath originally was to express trust in God. And I think uh, trust in God and that and acknowledging that God is the one who's providing for us. And so I think that there's a lot of modern parallels to that. So I think for me in my life, the idea of kind of like being a workaholic is a struggle because I really like being productive and I like working hard and I like sending lots of emails and getting a lot of work done and people thinking that I'm really good at my job 
And so if I ever though start to think, well, this is something that I'm doing and not acknowledging that it's God who's given me this ability to do this or has given me the motivation or um, has given me favor with people, but that I'm the one who's, who's actually working this for myself apart from God, then I think that that is kind of where I run into that issue with Sabbath. And so I think we need to be recognizing that, um, that this kind of issue, that it's, um, it's because of God that we have received all of these, um, uh, all these, that we have what we need. And it's not necessarily because of our own striving after something though i mean definitely work hard please don't please don't think that i'm saying that you should just sit around and not not do any work or anything but i think it's important to recognize that so we continue in chapter four jesus is the great high priest we've already talked about that a little bit that jesus is better than any of the priests that were a part of the original um what would be called like the levite priesthood which was a priesthood that was set up in the law He's saying that Jesus is actually a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest that um, actually came around even before there was a law. And so he's saying that Jesus is better because his, just like Melchizedek was around before um, before the, the, the Levite priesthood that is talked about in, um, in the first five books of the Old Testament, Jesus... Um, just like Melchizedek, he's a part of that order, of the one that came before then, like where, where we hear about Melchizedek. So um, that's something that we can talk about in class because I think it's a little bit confusing to kind of go through and say, I would want to talk through it with you. But basically the idea is that Jesus is the best priest. That's, that's the main takeaway from there. Um, there is an interesting um, discussion for people that are very committed to the idea that um, it's not possible to, to um, the, the word would be, the words would be kind of fall away for someone who's once a Christian to end up not being a Christian, for someone who's had their sins forgiven and entered into a relationship with Jesus to then leave that relationship with Jesus or leave that time of following Jesus. Ultimately, like in a way where you die and then you, you no longer, um, you are then receive God's wrath for your sin, even though at one point you've been forgiven basically can you can you fall out of the family of god right that kind of question there's people that are really committed to the idea that you can't um and i'm i'm in that kind of camp definitely like i think that god definitely preserves people from um from falling away by his grace but um there is a kind of a sticky passage here in hebrews 6 and so um um, I'll let you read, well, you should have already read through that. And as you read through it, you uh, can come across the passage here, uh, 6, 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So he's saying that these are people who are, Christians and they've fallen away they've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed 
and its end is to be burned. And so one of the things to kind of remember here is that, is that in the New Testament, there's not this kind of theoretical faith that people have, this like intellectual faith that people have that is, um, that only exists within my mind, it's between me and Jesus, that kind of thing. The only way that someone is seen to be a Christian in the New Testament sense is if we can observe in their life um, the fruit of that connection with Jesus, that they're living a changed life and they're persevering in that faith. And so I think that whereas we want to go up to this theoretical level and kind of say, well, like in an objective sense, like um, someone either is a Christian or isn't, they are, um, they, someone could theoretically be a Christian and not have work that demonstrates that they're a Christian. I think, I think Paul and I think the author of the Hebrews would say, if you're not acting like a Christian, then you're not a Christian. If you're not acting like a follower of Jesus, striving after imitating Jesus and, and showing him to the world, then you're not a Christian. Why would you call yourself? Christian basically means follower of, of Christ. Why would you call yourself a follower of Christ if you weren't acting like a follower of Christ? It doesn't mean that we don't stumble sometimes. It doesn't mean we don't still need forgiveness and grace, but it means that that's the general direction of our lives. So I think what this, what the, what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that there are these people who um, they come in to the the church, the the fellowship, the body, the family of God. They are partaking in the life of the community, and then at some point they they leave that and uh, i don't think that this is probably a person who it, it doesn't have to be someone who we would see as like oh that was a very strong believer a very strong follower of jesus that then f that then um fell away i think it could be anyone that um anyone who's just a, a part of the community of faith who who sees all the benefits and sees up close and personal what it's like, what it means to follow Jesus and sees God's power working in people's lives to change them and then turns away from that. I think, I think what's going on here is he's saying that, um, that that person is, is for all intents and purposes is not going to come back because they've already seen the best that Jesus has to offer and they've chosen to leave it and reject it. So that's kind of the way I read it and the way I make sense of it in my own theological construct. But there's definitely a lot of ways that that could be, that could be read. And this is probably one of the most challenging passages for those that would, that would take issue with the idea that God will always preserve those who are truly in relationship with his, with him. So moving on from there, um, we get Melchizedek again in chapter 7, again high priest, right, in chapter 8. Very famous passage we see in um, chapter 11. This is what's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Hall of Faith, something like that, because it uh, the author of the Hebrews discusses the importance of faith in God's promises, faith in this idea that one day we will enter into, or that our faith will become sight. One day the things that we believe in, right, the promise that God will set the world right, the promise that Jesus will return, the promise that we will um, get to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and new earth for those of us who are followers of Jesus, all those promises are dependent on faith because we can't see it yet, right? 
um, the faith is is basically the idea that we don't see something, but we believe in it even though we don't see it. Because if you see something, then it's no longer faith. That's what's called sight. So if you look in the, the beginning of chapter 11, he says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So he goes, um, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, um, by faith, Moses. And so he provides all these examples of people who persevered in faith. And so this fits with the um, purpose of the, the second part here after the comma in my statement is that Jesus should be followed regardless of the repercussions, is that regardless of what happens in your life, regardless of how, what kind of shame it might bring on you to follow Jesus, he's saying that we need to continue staying in that faith that, um, that God will make good on his promises, regardless of what the situation may be. And so he's providing all of these good exemplars of people who had strong faith, who, who in a, in a, Jewish mind, these are like the superstars, you know what I mean? This is like the, you know, the babe, you know, Abraham's like the Babe Ruth. I don't know if that makes sense. And I just watched Sandlot the other day. So Babe Ruth is in my mind. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Sandlot, but, um, you know, Abraham is kind of like the superstar of, of, of Jewish faith. Moses is like a superstar thought of as a very faithful person. And so, and so the author of the Hebrews is making the case like you should be like Abraham, you should be like Moses and continue and have faith in God's promises, even when there's evidence that is kind of making you think that God won't make good on his promises when you see when your current situation doesn't match what God's promise is. Um, so much good stuff in this book. I mean, I would really encourage you, you know, if you, I mean, you have, you've already read it, but to just even read it again and maybe spend some more time in it. There's so much richness that's here. I think, um, another spot where I get this idea about the repercussions that Jesus should be followed regardless of the repercussions is, um, this idea, um, again, this symbolism that comes up, this, this book of Hebrews is filled with um, references to the Hebrew scriptures and Jewish tradition. And this idea comes up that, um, the, uh, that G he draws a parallel between the sacrifices that were, uh, were made in the old Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that, um, that there's this idea that here we go. Yeah, in uh, chapter 13, verse 11, for the bodies of, <clears throat> so this is referring to the sacrifices that were made um, in the Old Testament, uh, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And so there was a rule that you would make a sacrifice in the holy place and the, the, the tent where God's presence was, um, was thought to dwell. You'd make the sacrifice there, and then you would take the body outside of the camp of Israel. So, because remember, they were wandering around the wilderness. They would take it outside the camp. <coughs> this is before they had a temple. And would burn that sacrifice. Okay? So, that was verse 11. Verse 12. So, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 
Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So this is something that's just like so amazing to me. He's saying that that um, G, in the same way that it was kind of shameful to be brought outside the camp for that sacrifice, that sacrifice to be burned or whatever, Jesus also suffered shame when he went outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the camp, quote unquote, in order to be crucified. So Jesus was sacrificed outside of the camp. And so let us let us also be willing to join that shame and go outside the camp as well. And the implication I would even say is to the point of death. And he's saying that by doing so, by being faithful to the, up to that point, we will be able to inherit the city that God has for us, that eternal city, which is the new heavens and new earth, basically, or what some may um, talk about as like the fruition of the kingdom of God, something like that. So a lot of uh, really good stuff in here. I would say... To me, this is the central passage in the book when we already read Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world.